Good morning, friends. I'm so glad to see all of your faces here this morning on this sunshiny, cool day. So welcome to First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. We are a Unitarian Universalist congregation, which in its broadest terms means that we have in this room people from most of the world's religions here all at once, people who say no thank you to religion. Uh, we have people who believe in a God right beside them all day, and people who believe that we are all manifestations of God, that the divine light shines through us. And then there are people who don't hold truck with that God stuff at all. But of all the things that the people here believe, nobody here believes in hell, which actually carries a lot with it, if you think about it in terms of people's worth and dignity and inherent goodness. We all come here to be friends, to reflect, to be quiet, to think and talk and act upon what matters most to us. So welcome. We're going to light our chalice this morning, and if you'd read with me from the bulletin, our chalice lighting. Love is the spirit of this church, and service is its law. This is our great covenant, to dwell together in peace, to seek the truth in love, and to help one another. For the attentive among you, you will know that the call to worship this morning, you will notice that the call to worship this morning is not the wonderful reading from Dakota, Dakota from Kathleen Norris. Uh, we'll have that later. But our call to worship this morning is based on a work written by Erica A. Hewitt. All of us are welcome here. All of us are loved. All of us are welcome here. All of us are loved. Some of us are bringing our best selves to this place, and some of us are bringing our struggling selves, including pieces of ourselves that we might not be proud of. All of us are welcome here, and all of us are loved. Some of us already have open hearts, and some of us aren't quite there yet. Because our hearts have gotten a little beat up this week or this past year and might have forgotten how to trust and open. Your heart is welcome here, no matter how bruised. We welcome you among us. All of us are imperfect, but we're here to drop our defenses and trust what happens in worship, that it might be powerful and life-giving. Together we affirm that this day and our being together on this day can make each of us braver, more compassionate, and wiser than when we woke up this morning. A reading from Kathleen Norris. The Desert Fathers, who include Christian hermits, ascetics, and monks who lived mainly in the desert of Egypt, beginning around the third century of the Common Era. These desert fathers and mothers were not more or less concerned with that others behave in the proper way, so much as people acutely aware of their own weaknesses and who tried to see their situation clearly without distortions of pride, ambition, or anger. 
they saw sin, what they called bad thoughts, as any impulse that leads us away from paying full attention to who and what we are and what we are doing. Any thoughts or acts that interfere with our ability to love God and love our neighbor. Many desert stories speak of judgment as the worst obstacle for a monk. Abba Joseph said to Abba Pastor, Tell me how I can become a monk. The elder replied, If you want to have rest here in this life and also in the next, in every conflict with another, say, Who am I? And judge no one. Comes to the time in our service when we join one another in silence. And I'll start us off here with a reading from Lao Tzu, um, 5th century Taoist thinker. Break into the peace within. Hold attention in stillness. And in the world outside, you will ably master the 10,000 things. All things rise and flourish, then go back to their roots. Seeing this return brings true rest where we discover who we really are. Then we act with compassion. Within ourselves, we can find room for everything. Now let us spend time with our breath, with our God, with ourselves.
So I'd invite you this morning to conjure up a small post-it note in your mind. It could be whatever color you want. Um, And on this post-it note, you can put two pieces of information. Number one, the answer to this question. What is a mistake? Like, in its essence, what is a mistake? And number two, what's one of the worst mistakes you've ever made? The last few years, um, I've been attending High Holidays in the Jewish faith um, often, and Yom Kippur is one of my favorite holidays. And that has, I would say, impacted my view of what a mistake is. Um, Yom Kippur is the day that you ask for forgiveness for missing the mark. I have come, I think, through participation in those services to start to think of a mistake as a misunderstanding or a, mis- or a forgetting of the bigger picture. And in preparation for this sermon, I started thinking about um, one of my biggest mistakes as I look back on life. Um, and I would say that one of the biggest mistakes for me was not going to a funeral of a friend when I was 17. It was a person I loved who had died suddenly in a terrible car accident. I was a freshman in college. I had broken up with him the year before. I was dating someone else. I felt hideously, hideously, unbearably guilty and sad, and I was afraid to face his family. I didn't have the money to travel to Ireland where he lived, and I had no idea what to do. There was nobody I trusted to talk to about it, and I just didn't go. And my guilt and my grief, those things I carried with me after that for about 10 years. Those two things, guilt and grief. When you try to avoid them, I have learned, they just sort of clatter along at your heels. Um, And I learned that you can spend years just covering your ears, pretending that that din is a normal everyday background noise. So I have been a chaplain now, a UU Buddhist humanist chaplain, um, for about four years. Um, I've been at Seton for a while, and now I'll I'll start working soon with the Texas Organ Sharing Alliance. And I must say, some of the gifts of being a chaplain is getting real comfortable making mistakes. You're going into hospital rooms every single day, It's like going into somebody's living room that you've never met before. You have no idea what you're going to find, and there's so many ways to put your foot in a cow patty. I once asked a man in his 30s in a cardiac ICU room if the woman in the bed who was intubated was his mom. It was his wife. She looked a lot older, but she was very sick. Um, And my thoughts and prayers are with them. They're both ministers, and I just that she's doing well. I think she's trucking, trucking along. But you don't make that kind of mistake too many times. You, you sort of figure it out. Um, but you can also, by no fault of your own, absolutely come in at a terribly awkward time when someone is flipped over on the bed and having their bum wiped. 
Um, and you just have to sort of, you can't hang on to that embarrassment, yours or theirs. You have to just sort of let it go. You must, you must. So the more comfortable I have learned that I am as a chaplain with my own missteps and mistakes, the more I can give that gift of understanding uh, with other people's mistakes. Making mistakes and knowing that you're going to make them and walking into the room anyway, I think takes a lot of courage. Brene Brown, you may have heard her talk about this. You fail better next time. Um, And still, there's also a difference between, I think, honoring our mistakes and our growth and whitewashing, right? And particularly in witnessing some of the untruths and half-truths of this current administration in Washington after a mistake is made, when we lie about a mistake, that's not courage, and it's also not acceptance. I've met a lot of people in difficult circumstances involving life and death, and I've learned a lot from them. It has been my honor to learn a lot about acceptance. I remember a woman who died at the hospital earlier this year. A mistake I made there was speaking to her only in Spanish. Somebody had told me she only speaks Spanish, and little did I know she was bilingual, and there I was with my, you know, doing my best Spanish. Um, And it's just, it's a little embarrassing, but you suck it up and you move on. Chaplaincy is a little bit like parenting in that way, where (laughs) you have to be okay with yourself because you really have to be checking in with the people around you and making sure that they're okay. So this lady, this woman was not supposed to die that day. Her family wasn't expecting this. They weren't anywhere around. And I stood with her She just took a turn for the worse, and I stood with her as she struggled for breath, and I held her hand, and I sang to her. And it it wasn't about saying the right thing at all. It it never is in, in a room like that. It's really just about being there and saying, with your presence, I care, and I'm here, and I'm not leaving you. And that's pretty much it. I think it's so interesting. The wisdom I feel that you're left with as a chaplain is not, how can I not make a mistake here? But given all the things that are happening to this family that nobody wanted, how can I just be decent to them, to this patient, to this family, and treat them as I'd want my family to be treated? It's a kind of love that I think amounts to fearlessness in the end. Um, And I think it applies to a lot of life, I think. It's really benefited me to learn this. So for this woman in this room, as we're breathing together, people just kept showing up. Her son, her cousins, three of her exes showed up at the hospital on that last day. In Texas, if you're a chaplain, you know you have built trust with the family when they will acknowledge some of their more complicated truths, like... My mom was a lesbian. She raised hell when she was younger. There was this crazy incident where somebody lost an earlobe. (sighs) She sure had a temper. And also, she'd do anything for you. There was another patient whose family I got to know very well, and I heard this story about him in his last days of life. Um about a group trip going whitewater rafting, and somehow everybody was all together on these rafts, and somebody hadn't planned it well or hadn't reckoned with the earth, and they just all ran aground at one point. 
And that was all she wrote. And he, people tell this story, he popped out of the raft and he took, he took the top off of the cooler. He turned it over, he put a bunch of drinks on it, and he got out of the boat and said, I'm your waiter. <laughs> and he was also waiting in the water. You may have picked up on that. So it was also very funny. Um, I think so much, this is a story that was told at his funeral. Because so much about what defines our character is what we do with something unexpected. Our mistake or another person's mistake. At the time when we die, I want to ask you, what do you, what do you expect someone to say at the funeral? What would be your wish? And would you want to love so authentically, with so much care, that all of your exes show up? Maybe not all of your exes. <laughs> like, three seems like a good number. <laughs> but it, is it really our deepest wish to have a funeral where people would say, nothing to see here, mistakes were made, but not by her. I was a chaplain for a year to a mom who was in her early 30s, who died last year leaving behind a small child, just two years old. This funny, loud, and strong little girl. And her mother, my patient, knew that it could be dangerous for her to get pregnant, but she went ahead with it. She did it. It brought her joy, and she got this terminal disease. This young woman, her heart was just enormous. She was so brokenhearted. She knew she was dying for about a year. Her body had stopped being able to process nutrients, and she was starving slowly. She knew she was going to have to leave her little girl with her husband, with her mother, and with their families. And I just remember my dear patient grooming her own mom to be mother to her baby. This wasn't the mom she'd wanted. We'd talked about this. Many of the things that my patient had made of her life her motivation, her enthusiasm, her schooling. She had grown into these things in opposition to her mom. And yet, she knew that her boat and her mother's boat and her daughter's boat were all tied together. So she worked in these hospital visits to teach her mother what she knew about being a good mother. Everybody in that room was mothering each other the best way they knew how. Many times at the hospital, we'll be confronted with the question, often accompanied by anger, by fear, am I doing enough? Are we doing enough? Is this other family doing enough? And what you learn in walking with families in this kind of scenario is that we're all doing our damnedest to make the best decision we can in the moment with the energy and the information that we have. Being with people in this way has really made me think that they're just... There just aren't any mistakes when you're coming from a place of love. Alice Walker writes about this. She wrote this really cool rewriting of the Beatitudes. You know, blessed are the poor and blessed are the poor in spirit. Um, and she wrote, helps are those who love the broken and the whole. None of their children nor any of their ancestors nor any parts of themselves shall be hidden from them. And I love that. I think one of the biggest things we fear in our imperfection is that we do not deserve respect and love. 
That if we reveal ourselves as imperfect, we will not be offered dignity or belonging. Someone will say, you, out of the pack, holding everybody back. And part of what I like about being UU is that there seems to be space for many kinds of people in the pack. Marianne Williamson, a mystic, a Christian writer, she writes about playing small. She talks about how we give others freedom by living our lives out loud. She writes, we are all meant to shine as children do. We were born to make manifest the glory that is within us. It is not just in some of us, it is in everyone. And as we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. As we're liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others. What I admire about a kid is not that she gets everything right. I'm willing to forgive selfishness, thoughtlessness, wrong words, right? I, re- I admire her isness, not measuring what she is against what others think, but her direct, profound, and observant relationship with what is. Or as we, as we read in the, in the meditation, we could consider that the Tao. I feel like, and I'm just, I'm thinking of my little nephew here. Because he, wa- he is perfection. I mean, he's not perfect in, in any way. He, and he wa- he's got this really big belly. And he, just, and he kind of bends over a little bit backwards, you know, to make room for it as he walks into the room. And he's, he just, he can make anybody smile. Even though he's learning all of these hard lessons. Even though he's not good at sharing. <sighs> even though he's recently learned the word no and shouts it at very high volume. Um... No movement is perfect, no people are perfect. And I think here of Polly Murray, a queer woman, a stubborn bus integrator, a genderqueer person who did not get to be the face of the civil rights movement because she dressed in a masculine way and loved women. I think of the women's suffrage movement in the 1880s where white women leaders had agreed not to, black, not to pursue black folks' right to vote, to try and do women before black folks, leaving black women and men disenfranchised. No movement is perfect. No people are perfect. But part of respecting our learning process, I think, is not avoiding the mistakes. To dive in, to walk into the room, to get it out in the world, even though it's not perfect. And I think one way that I process this is the Buddhist concept of shunyata, emptiness. Like the self becomes a lot less defined. And some people think, you know, I think when you first hear about this idea, emptiness, there is no self, what does that mean? Is that a dodge for personal responsibility? Is that another way of saying mistakes were made but not by me? Um... But I think of shunyata as a way of dealing with mistakes as less personal. It means that we don't have to have such hard edges on the inside that rub us wrong or cut us when we make a mistake. Like when you get someone's pronouns wrong. I have that immediate feeling, that blush probably, knowing me, that terror, and the sense that even can go back to like elementary school. This is going on your permanent record. 
It can call up that anxiety like around a report card time. And I'm not going to ask people to raise their hands, but I imagine we have some A students, some B students, and some C students in this room. And I imagine we have feelings about that, whichever category we fall into. And I just feel like I was an A student for such a long time. And I, I eventually moved into a piece that I think is a C student piece. <laughs> it's, it's knowing that like whatever the report card holds, I can come back the next day and still eat lunch with the group and still go home to my family and still be loved and cared for. There's a negotiation we have to do with ourselves when we're revealed as imperfect. I have a friend who's intensely brilliant um, and also struggles with ADHD. So he's done a lot of work on deep acceptance of imperfection. And one of the things he says is, there's nothing I like so much as having been wrong about something. Yeah, it's a good tense, right? I was wrong. Now I know better. Um, I myself sometimes present in a more genderqueer way. Um, sometimes not in Texas, but depending on where I am in the country. Um, and a friend whose daughter I was babysitting once asked me point blank if I was a girl or a boy. And that was surprising, but cool. Her mom was mortified. Um, but really, it was okay with me. Because I think when we can be a safe space for people who are struggling with a question, that's the best thing that we can hope for. A friend of mine who is trans feels the same way. He says, I don't mind kids asking questions. I like it. I'll ask them back, well, what do you think that I am? And kids will have the chance to think about signifiers of masculinity and femininity. What does it mean that you wear a collared shirt in a particular way? Or that your hair is very short? Or that you wear chunky shoes? And I think it also, this question also brings light to Jesus' question, who do you say that I am? Because we notice, too, in that passage that the answers that people bring to the table reveal a lot about culture, a lot about assumption, not a lot about the figure of who we actually are. When we ask questions, we're, we're willing to learn something new. We open the landscape and we say, this space is okay for mistakes. I know this is not the season for it, but it was just too perfect. Do you all know the, the Christmas story, The Littlest Angel? I love this story so much. It's like, it's like a guaranteed tearjerker story. Um, I, recommend, I recommend you read it all the way from the beginning. But sort of, it's basically the story of a lonely small child in perfect heaven. In heaven that is shining and beautiful with incredible music. And just everything is, everything has that little ding of perfection about it. And this is a dirty and clumsy four, four-year-old um, who hasn't quite got it right, and, and bites his wingtips, which makes them very, very dirty. Um, and then there's this contest about who should, who should bring the gift for the baby that's going to be born. And it turns out that the most valuable gift in all of heaven is the gift the child has to give, a bird's nest, a dog's collar, a butterfly, and two white stones. Right? And I just... And I think in that moment, see, oh my gosh, I'm crying already. <laughs> Just when it comes to non-dualism and not thinking in black and white, we also get ready for paradox, right? 
when two white stones and a butterfly are fitting gifts for the king of kings. And I think this is also sort of the mystery of the Tao. Not one of us lives in isolation, and not one of us is only one thing. As a chaplain meeting people in many stages of their lives and at the time of death, nobody says, I wish I had been more polite and remembered everybody's name. Or even, I wish I'd paid my rent on time. Or even, I wish I hadn't offended a friend 20 years ago. What they regret is what they did with that mistake. I wish I hadn't let our relationship lapse. I wish I hadn't stayed with the wrong partner for so many years. I wish I hadn't let my mother go through that painful time alone. Because mistakes are our chance to recommit to what we believe is true and important by doing something usually hard. Really, we regret not the mistake so much as what we did or didn't do with it. Actual regrets that I've heard? I wish we'd gotten to start our blueberry farm. I wish I could have recorded another album. I wish I'd had a chance to fall in love. If you listen, they're really asking for the chance to make more mistakes. At the end of life, I believe big audacious mistakes mean that you will leave people laughing and in awe of you. And hopefully nobody loses an earlobe. Um, but in the midst of any glorious mistake, I invite you to ask, what am I practicing right now? What is it you're practicing on that post-it in your mind? That worst mistake on the mental post-it. What is it you're practicing? Gail Schur, who is a Buddhist writer, wrote a book about writing called One Continuous Mistake. And she said, if writing is your practice, the only way to fail is not to write. In thinking about this sermon, I thought of that terrible mistake that I made when I was 17. Not finding a way at the time to claim my grief and to honor my friend's life. At that time, I couldn't have told you what I was practicing. Now I think I was practicing not seeing money as a barrier to important things. I was practicing following my heart really badly, it turns out. Not so good at it at first. But then you learn how to listen better. I was practicing confronting terrible feelings of guilt and walking myself through. And the learning dance I go through when I want to block them out. I was practicing showing up for my grief and learning all my strategies for avoiding it. And I was learning that grief, grief can turn into a beast when it's pushed underneath and not allowed to breathe. Not allowed to be at the surface where we need to acknowledge it. I wish I had moved heaven and earth to be, to be there to honor his life. And yet that terrible mistake led me closer to my vocation. I began to see the steps toward becoming a chaplain. And now I walk others through a grief process. I was lucky enough to hear from Ann Edwards this week um, some words from Rainer Maria Rilke. So we are grasped by what we cannot grasp. It has an inner light, even from a distance. 
and changes us, even if we do not reach it, into something else, which, hardly sensing it, we already are. I believe this is a key commitment we make as universalists, to follow that light and not to leave each other in hell or even purgatory when we make mistakes. Not ever using a mistake to put others or ourselves out of our own hearts. We must be kind because each of us is fighting a hard battle. And I'll close with some words of Leonard Cohen. Like a bird on a wire, like a drunk in a midnight choir, we have tried in our way to be free. We extinguish the flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of the community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. And now, uh, in the tradition of the singing benediction, like a bird, on a wire, like a drunk in a midnight choir, we have tried in our way to be free. Go in peace. This is a production of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, go to our website at austinuu.org.